In the early 1900s, there were two dystopian no novels that were published, there we go, that depicted different versions of a totalitarian future. The one was A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. The other one was George Orwell's 1984. What was interesting about both of those is that they have different pictures of what human sexuality will look like in that future. For Brave New World, you actually have some kind of prophetic anticipation of our hookup culture where sex is freely performed, there's contraceptives everywhere, and it's primarily about pleasure. When you go to 1984, it's rather radically different. The idea that you would marry someone for love is anathema, and the main character actually has to have this idea of love deprogrammed out of him. The only reason why they have sex and sexuality in that version of the future is for the sake of procreation. Of the two, it's interesting that Brave New World is the world in which we seem more closely aligned. Not that all those elements are there, but the elements that, that sex is primarily about pleasure has become the dominant force in our world. How does that impact you and I today? Well, I want to expand on the sermon I preached a couple months ago in January, I'm sorry, February 28th on expressive individualism. And we're going to expand and show how expressive individualism has this aspect of human sexuality added into it now in our culture. And then look at the biblical passages from the creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration and see how does that impact how we as Christians should be thinking about sex and sexuality. One of the things that brought us here, obviously, is expressive individualism. If you remember last time we talked about it, and it basically is this idea that you're supposed to live life with this goal, dig down deep inside of you, discover who you are, and then assert that identity upon the world. And what's happened is that this is also wrapped into it, this component of sexual identity. And so it's become a very much a sexual expression. I'm supposed to find out my sexual identity and then tell the world about it. So how did we get here? How do we get to something like a brave new world, and how did Huxley put possibly imagine that future being ours? Well, a couple different things have, have brought us here. One of the, the groups of writers I didn't talk about last time that have helped shape this world are the romantic writers. A group of writers, but also even some, some painters and others that emphasize nature, individuality, but also human emotion. And it's an emphasis on the human emotion that then begins to shift their thoughts on things like marriage. I have a quote here from Shelley in her poem, Queen Mob. Notice what happens to marriage, which in the Bible is defined as a covenant that's supposed to be enriching itself in the love that each partner has and brings. Watch how Shelley defines marriage in this quote. If happiness be the object of morality of all human unions and disunions, if the worthiness of every action is to be estimated by the quantity of pleasurable sensation it is calculated to produce, then the connection of the sexes is so long sacred as it contributes to the comfort of the parties and is naturally dissolved when its evils are greater than its benefits. There is nothing immoral in this separation. What she has done here is now put marriage and the good of marriage solely on the foundation of happiness. And as soon as happiness disappears, you can then divorce at will and remarry if you wish. And there is nothing, she says, immoral in this separation. So for her, morality 
as long as happiness is present or absent, morality is no longer applicable to that conversation. And so you have with the romantics and with others this shifting of how we understand human relationships to happiness. And as we know, happiness is a very shifting thing that can be there one minute and gone the next. So you have this redefinition happening as well. You also have the redefinition of, of what it means to be a self, a person. Last time I mentioned, this is not working as effectively as I'd hoped today. All right. I mentioned Sigmund Freud, and today I want to revisit him, but for a different aspect. Part of what Freud gives to Western culture is this idea that humans are, in essence, their sexuality. For Freud, when people are born, they begin their sexual development. Now, most of us tend to think of adolescence as that age, in, and puberty as that age in which we begin to develop the sexual dimension of our bodies. But Freud redefines that and says that even at, after birth, early on, there are these stages that are all about sexual pleasure, and that puberty is the end of all of that. So what it does is it sexualizes childhood. It also means that development of those sexual pleasures is necessary for personal development, for personality. And so what happens, and I think this is really critical to understand where we are today as a culture, is that sexual identity now becomes wed to personality. And that's why these topics are obviously so fraught with controversy and often heat because you're not just debating an ethical practice, you're debating someone's very existence, someone's very identity, because Freud has now made it a part of who we are as persons. You also see the sexualization of childhood, I think, as a result. If childhood is no longer the stage of innocence with sexual desires coming on later, all of life is now sexual. And as a result, it becomes essential to who we are as humans. We'll have more to say about that later. But that's where I believe our culture has brought us. And that's where, when you have expressive individualism on one side, you have these elements of the sexualization taken together. And now identity and expressing oneself is tied up so tight to one's identity as, as sexual orientation. So what might the Bible have to say in response? Today we're going to look at the different chapters of redemptive history. We're going to first look at creation and see that God has a good ordering of the world that he wants, and he creates humans as male and female, and that he has a place in that for sexual procreation, that there's a place in there that he calls good. Secondly, we're going to see that the fall comes and distorts some of those intentions, that we live in a broken world, and that even our sexuality will be impacted by the fall. But that's not the end of the story, because the third chapter is redemption. God offers forgiveness. God offers transformation. And so we're going to see that God's redemptive story includes even the sexual dimension of who we are. And finally, we're going to see the restoration of all things where there will be happiness, the fulfillment of all happiness without sexual behavior. So that's where we're going today. Let's begin by looking at creation. These are well-known verses, and they speak to God creating humans with purpose. Look what he says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. A couple of different things I want to pull out from these verses. The first of all is that humans were made with a purpose. 
They were made to be image bearers, which means we're supposed to refract God's glory throughout creation. As soon as you bring a creator into the picture, and as soon as you have a purpose, you now have the foundation for good and evil. As soon as you have those two things, you have good and evil, right and wrong. And here's why. How do you know your light switch is faulty? Well, when you go to turn the switch, you know it's supposed to create a circuit that turns your light bulb on. And when it no longer works, you're like, hmm, it's not turning the lights on. You know something in there is now faulty, it's broken. You don't have to know the engineer. You don't even know how to know his design. You just need to know what it's supposed to do. And as soon as you know what it's supposed to do, you can tell when you have a good light switch and a bad light switch. So as soon as you have a creator and intention, there's a good and bad of how things are supposed to work. Secondly, I want to pull out this fact that God creates humans as male and female. The sexual ordering of the world is that there are males and that there are females. That's a part of God's good design for the world. Now, there are ways in which human culture perhaps distorts or reduces our understanding of maleness or femaleness in in an unfortunate way. For instance, think about what it means to be a man in America. Sometimes I have the image of me to be John Wayne, you know, running around with a 3030 Winchester, or being a female. You have to be Marilyn Monroe. Those are reductive ideas of what it means to be a male and female. But what it means to say that God creates males and females is that this is not just a social construct. It's construct through and through. There are cultural elements we have to navigate. But God's ordering of the world in male and female means that he orders us in male as male and female, and that is a good thing. That's how it was meant to be. So this is not just culture, this is also a grid for how God wants the world to be. And then finally, whoops, no, 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 sorry, I wasn't indicating to go on, go back, please, there we go. This last part, God blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Human sexuality was for a purpose. And in our brave new world, we tend to dismiss or perhaps reduce and often not acknowledge the fact that human sexuality has this creative potential to bring new humans into the world. If you've ever been a mother or father, this this is powerful, to welcome a new human being into the world. It's one of the ways we get to mirror the creator, the one who, who makes things, because God gives our bodies the capacity to actually make new human beings. Not in the same way that he does. He creates out of nothing. We, working with, with the matter that we have, bring these new humans into the world. And so we image the creator. And so part of the purpose for human sexuality is that it would, in fact, bring other people into the world, to be other image bearers, to, in fact, mirror who God is. At the end of chapter 2, we had this beautiful little picture of what God wants this to look like. What kind of arrangement does God want for family, for sexuality? And here's what we get. At the end of chapter 2, he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here you have a foundation for what the picture should look like. This is the created intention. And there's a couple different things here. There's a leaving of the family of origin. There is a holding fast to the wife, and then there's the two becoming one. This is where you see elements of, of I'd say, the unitive part of human sexuality. There's a coming together. There's pleasure 
And as a part of that, God knows that sex has pleasure attached to it. The Song of Solomon is in the Bible. So in case you think God's just like a killjoy on this, that is in the Bible. And it's been scandalizing teenagers ever since. But don't miss this. This is the foundational picture. So a lot of folks get hung up on all the different prohibitions that come later in the Bible. Leviticus 18 has a bunch of them against same-sex relations, against bestiality, against incest. Those all make sense because of a passage like this that says, here's the design, here's the intention that it should look like this. So whatever goes on to be said later in the Bible, and there's a consistent prohibition against those other kinds of sex acts, finds its condemnation ultimately here in this foundation of what it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, creation is not the only chapter in the Bible. There is this affirmation that God has upon human sexuality. But the fall happens in the very next chapter. And it's the fall that brings with it this distortion, this corruption of the picture that God wanted for the world. And so in chapter 3, after humans decide they want the world in their terms to revolt against the Creator, to make themselves into God, God delivers a curse back to them, And he says this to Adam. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Life now has a futility to it. It's a long, slow march to the grave. In the fall, the original goodness is distorted. Humans now experience the curse and not just the blessing. The ground yields thorns and not fruit. Moreover, one of the curses implies that the relationship between the sexes would be one of conflict. So remember that harmonious picture we saw at the end of chapter 2? Well, in chapter 3, we actually see the opposite of that, the undoing. And this is the word to the woman. It says this, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. There's a notion of conflict here. No longer the two becoming one flesh. Now there's an element of conflict And it says, and he shall rule over you. There's going to be this relational disunion, the undoing of Genesis 1 and 2, even in marriage itself. And if the harmonious picture of marriage that we get in Genesis 2 devolves into this a chapter later, should we not expect that much more about sex and sexuality will also be affected? Indeed, that is the case. For example, the vast majority of humans are born with a clear biological sex. Yet there are individuals who fall into the category of intersex or other conditions where they don't fit the normal boxes of male and female. They might have both parts, male and female parts. They might be missing parts. Some, for instance, are born with XXY chromosomes, even though most are born with XX or XY, differentiating them as male and female. Going beyond intersex conditions, the fall's distorting effects on the world means that even some who don't have intersex conditions might still struggle with their identity as male or female. The language for such a struggle today is gender dysphoria, and it basically categorizes instances where people have a strong desire to be the opposite gender of their biological sex. Sure, some might explore today because it has become popular to do so, But those who explore from a place of curiosity are not the same as those who have some genuine discontent or question about this this identity. In addition to seeing creation not fully working according to its original blueprint, 
we also have to admit that sexual desires often depart from God's design. We see this all over the world. The world is full of heterosexual sin. Pornography turns humans from persons into objects with a few clicks of a mouse. Adultery abounds and shreds marriage after marriage. Children are sexually abused by family members and carry lifelong trauma with them. And this is not just a tale of a secular culture. This happens even in Christian families. There is plenty of heterosexual sin to go around. Surprise us that some people will experience an attraction to people of the same sex. So we have verses that do, in fact, condemn these kinds of sex acts in Leviticus 18, for instance, which says, you shall not lie with a male as, a, as with a woman. It is an abomination. And throughout Scripture, there's a constant prohibition against this. You find this in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. There's not an exception in Scripture that I can find. And for some people, especially... Oops, sorry, getting ahead over there on the slides. Especially those brought up with expressive individualism or perhaps informed by the, the poet Shelley and others... That I, have, that I referenced earlier, they might respond by saying, well, love is love. There are ultimately no morals that should govern love. But if we should seek to live an ethical life, desire alone does not make something right. We have all kinds of desires. We have a desire for more money, but we shouldn't go rob the bank. You might have a desire to eliminate that annoying coworker, but you shouldn't murder them or seek to develop that relationship further. When it comes to sexual desire especially, the presence of the desire alone does not make it good and right. The question is whether it follows God's original design for sexual behavior. I think that's where creating it with attention comes back into play. So one of the arguments advanced in our culture in support of same-sex relations is the one popularized by Lady Gaga to the effect that I was born this way, and if God makes no mistakes, then affirmation seems to be the only logical response. However, if desire alone does not make something right, as we've just said, then we have to appeal to something else. We have to ask what we're supposed to be rather than assert what we already are, like expressive individualism would say. Desire and predisposition toward behavior alone does not make them right and good unless, regardless of what they are. There are, for instance, certain genetic combinations that predispose people towards alcoholism. There are other ones that predispose people towards violent behavior. A 2014 study in molecular biology revealed that two genes, MAOA and CDH13, both predispose people towards violent behavior. But I don't hear any large-scale arguments saying, well, just because you have that genetic predisposition, you can go ahead and live into those desires. We would still say violent behavior is wrong, and we don't say to the alcoholic, yes, you love alcohol, you can have more of it. We would say you need to learn to control this desire. And so I would suggest the same thing applies to same-sex attraction. Having same-sex attraction does not therefore make acting on such desires any more moral than an alcoholic is excused because of his love for alcohol. The reality of sin's corruption in our world means that the world that we inhabit is not the way it was originally meant to be. That seems easy enough to admit when we're talking about hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters, it's a bit harder to admit when we're talking about ourselves, about our own desires, our own bodies. We live in a broken world. 
and we're all a part of that broken world in some way. The Bible says, oh, sorry, you're bringing it back. Thank you. The Bible says this in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. And it's very easy to sit in the seat of the condemner when it comes to issues of sexuality and say, well, I'm exempt, that person's worse. And yet I, I would beg to differ that most of us, I'm going I'm to bet, have we, having lived through puberty, cannot claim to be righteous in this area of human sexuality, that we've lived all of our lives following God's intent, intentions for our sexuality. None of us is righteous. No, not one. And so the one with, without sin can cast the first stone, but it will not be me. We've seen God's intention for human sexuality and creation. We've seen the brokenness in the fall. Is that the end of the story? Is it just broken, messed up world? No. Thankfully, God's story continues. The next chapter is redemption. That God does redeem people. He does call them out and bring them to himself. And so the Bible tells a story of God not just leaving us in our sin, but rather sending his son to die on our behalf, and that through our repentance and faith in his son, we receive forgiveness. And then God sends his spirit to transform us into the image of his son, to make us image bearers once again in the true way, in the full way. So even this area of sexual brokenness God is at work healing people. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul writes this to the Corinthians who, who were known to be a very sexualized culture. They had a thousand cult prostitutes on, at the pinnacle of their city at one point in time. They were known for their prostitution and things like that. But here's what Paul writes about the church living in that very city. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in that, he is affirming what we've seen throughout Scripture, that these kinds of acts, whether it's sexual immorality, adultery, or even same-sex unions, are not the way God intended it to be. But notice what he says now in verse 11. And such were some of you. He's saying this is what you, you were, but you came to Christ, and that label is no longer true of who you are. You were justified, made righteous, right? We can't be righteous on our own. We're justified before the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God justifies the ungodly. And so our track record, which is not pretty as humans, it can be wiped clean by the blood of the Lamb. And Paul is writing the Corinthians saying, guess what? You were this. And now you're clean before the throne of God. Now, as I say that, I'm bumping up against one of the strongest rebuttals our culture often gives. And that is you shouldn't possibly hope for transformation. When people have a different sex attraction or attracted to the same sex, they shouldn't hope to be changed or transformed from that. And I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm going to be honest. There are times that people have this same-sex attraction for much of their life. They would point perhaps to people like Alan Chambers, who used to lead Exodus International, which was a ministry for homosexuals. At some point, he said, you know what? I'm not sure the word cure is really applicable here to any struggle, including homosexuality. And then they ended up quitting the ministry, disbanding it, and it is no more. 
So I'm not going to suggest that it's easy. I'm not going to guarantee change. At the same time, there are stories of people who have had, I believe, real, actual, same-sex attraction who've come to Christ and experienced something radically different. A couple of them, you may, you may know one, Rosario Butterfield, had this experience where she came to faith and experienced change. On the other side is Jackie Hill Perry. I'm going to actually have her share her story with you through a video. Individuals who come into faith find their needs, perhaps psychological needs, their desires to be loved or affirmed, whatever that looks like in their life, and they find that in Christ, and suddenly everything else shifts for them, and they find these desires disappearing. That might not be everyone's experience. I don't want to guarantee that, but don't dismiss that. And so often I scroll down in the comments on that video, and you'll see things like, oh, she wasn't really a lesbian. No, I was like, that was her experience. Are we going to validate what she saw and how she found transformation in Jesus Christ? And so as the church, we hold out this hope that God's forgiveness isn't just limited to heterosexuals who are cisgender. No, God's forgiveness is lavish. It flows out. And we are the stewards of that story, offering it to the world. And so we can journey alongside people who are wrestling with these different things. It could be same-sex attraction. It could be whether they're a male or female. We can walk alongside of them and continue to show them that God is love and that there is a bigger story to latch onto. I read this following quote in an article by Mark Yarhouse, and it was a result of the first ever study that had been done on transgender youth who were Christians, so they self-identified in both camps. And, and this quote really caught me up short and convicted me because it was really a cry for what people wanted as they were journeying through this in the church. And so here's what this person wanted. They said, someone to cry with me rather than just denounce me. Hey, it is scary to see God not rescue someone from cancer or schizophrenia or gender dysphoria. But learn to allow your compassion to overcome your fear and repulsion. I think the invitation there is to come alongside people, to show love, to show compassion, to model this story, to offer this story of redemption, of forgiveness in Christ to those in our world. There is hope. And God's at work transforming us. And I have places in my own life that I'm like, God, we should speed up the process a little bit more. And some people immediately have changed. Others, it's a lifelong process. So we've seen the picture of creation, God's ideal for what human sexuality looks like. We've seen the fall has brought brokenness into the world. We've seen God redeeming people. Such were some of you, even, and the Corinthians. What about restoration? Restoration is the next chapter. We look forward to the time when the king comes back to restore the place to where it's supposed to be. We don't have as much, I would say, depiction of this as I would like. But we have a fascinating story that I had Holly read before the service about that gives us a really an insight into human sexuality in the world to come. So it was a story that was posed to Jesus, and it was about this fabricated story about you know, a woman who had seven husbands, and at the end, they're trying to figure out, like, well, in heaven... Who will she be married to? And so here's what they ask. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. 
So just hold on to that for a second. In heaven, there will be no marriage, which means that marriage is an order of this world. I'm also going to deduce from that that if there's no marriage in heaven, there's also no sexual relations in heaven with fellow humans in the resurrected state. Now let that settle in a little bit. Heaven is supposed to be the apex of human happiness, where we achieve everything we've ever longed for. And if this is true, then there's not a world with sex in it. No, it's a world without sex, and you can still be happy, still be fulfilled. In a world that's been, I would say, schooled by Freud to think human sexual fulfillment is essential and necessary for human happiness, this is a shocking turn of phrase. That you can actually live in a world and be fully fulfilled without sexual intercourse. Heaven will be that place. Now, think a little bit more with me. Jesus, we would say he lived the most fulfilled human life, lived out the fullness of the image of God. He was single all of his life. He never married, and he didn't have sex. Was he happy? Was he happy? Thank you. Thank you for saying yes. I appreciate that. Yes. Yes, I believe Jesus was happy. We often paint him as like a really stoic, just like, you know, flat. I had a friend who had a picture of Jesus with, with a happy face on. He's like, this is what you need to think about when you see Jesus. Yes, Jesus lived the most fulfilled human life, and you know what? He was never married. So often our world wants to hold out that you have to be sexually active to be happy, to be a fulfilled human being. But if the world to come doesn't even have that in it, and it is the world to come that we long for, then human happiness is not dependent upon human sexuality and its fulfillment. In addition, I want to make this point. Whereas Freud has led us to believe that human sexuality is so important to who we are as people, that it's core to our identity, even as children, if in heaven it's no longer activated, no longer used, is it really that core to who we are? Can you still be in heaven and not have sex? Yes. And so this idea that to be human, to live a full human life, you have to be sexually active, I think is just a patent lie from our culture. You can be a 40-year-old virgin and still live a fulfilled human life because it's contingent upon who we are going to be with in the age to come. So if our identity is not fully wrapped up in our sexuality in heaven, what is it wrapped up into? And this is where you see, I believe, what our true identities should be there and here as Christians, and it's this. And they can no longer die, thankfully, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. So their identity is not primarily in their sexuality or even in their marriage. It's now going to be in that we are God's children, God's sons and daughters of the king. Children of the life to come, the resurrected state. That's going to be the identity that we no longer have to worry about trying to prove, but rather we're going to receive that and we can live into that now. It's of another gender. We have to admit they are limited. We can change external appearances with reconstructive surgeries, 
but they can't ultimately change. They're very tricky and very nuanced, and I would just say this. Having a trusted Christian counselor to guide you through that would be well worth your time. I don't want to give all the different nuances and things that would, would be fine and which ones would not be from up, from up here. Now, for those with, with intersex conditions and other conditions like that, where identifying biological sex is more complicated, I think in such cases, parents or the individual does have possibility to ask questions about a reconstructive surgery that would, in fact, make one look more like one gender rather than another. And I think here's the moral difference on those kinds of conditions that I want to just splice. Hopefully, hopefully this, this works. And I would say this, in such cases, you're warring not against God's created order, but rather against the effects of the fall. And so seeing the different damages, like we would take out a cancer tumor as an effect of the fall, we'd want to remove that. I think in the same way, someone dealing with a true intersex condition could in fact do a reconstructive surgery without feeling like they were going against and thwarting God's order. Because they are in effect thwarting the fallen world in which we live. Second, for those who find themselves experiencing same-sex attraction, there are a couple implications. The first is that this is one area of life where the biblical commands invite you to something difficult, and I'm not going to deny that. I know it's not an easy invitation to hear, as it might mean a life of celibacy for some. At the least, it involves waiting on God's transforming work, to open yourself up and say, Lord, here I am, do you have something different for me? It's open yourself up to the Spirit's work. And I don't know what that would look like. You could have a story like Jackie Hill Perry's. You might have one more like Wes Hills, who has realized much of his life he's had a same-sex attraction and chosen to live a celibate life as a result. But being single, remember, is not doomed to unhappiness. It is a meaningful life. We often forget the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said, I wish everyone else would be like me. He, he thought singleness was the way to go. So sometimes we, we forget that Paul advocated for it at one point in his career. And while I'm on the topic of singleness, let me, let me say this. I know what it's like to be married with kids. It's a very consuming thing. You've got diapers to change, you've got food to make, then you've got to clean up after dinner, and it just feels like life is just consumed by trying to stay alive. And what happens is we then forget about the singles in our church who have more space for relationship. And so we can become so consumed in our personal lives, we forget that there are people who want relationships. And we have people in our church who are divorced. We have widows and widowers. We've got people who are single. We might even have people who are choosing to live a celibate lifestyle because of this. And what I'm going to invite you to do is, as married people, expand your vision just to think about what it would be like to invite them into your life, have them over for lunch, invite them into your care group. They might not want to have the same conversations about preschool and changing diapers that you want to talk about, but we have a lot of really great singles here at North Park Church. They're, they're real gems. And if you invite them into your life, I think you'll discover the profound depth that they have walked with Jesus. So don't overlook them. For those who fall into the heterosexual category, the Bible still has much for you. If you're married, channel that desire to your spouse. Cultivate that relationship. Don't let it die. Use the marriage covenant to reinvest, to invigorate that marriage, to say, this is the person I've chosen to love with my life. At the end of the month, we're going to have a date night. So those of you who are married with kids, you feel like, oh, I can't get away, there's too many kids around here, 
guess what? You got an opportunity to take advantage of that. Invest in your marriage. For those who are single, don't think that your life is on hold or that God is holding out on you, that you're waiting for that significant other to finally feel like you're a real human being. No, guess what? You are living a full life now. Together, we wait for the revelation of God's children. One day, all of us, regardless of our struggles in, in this life, regardless of our marriage status, to one day be united with Christ. And all the desire that we have now to be known by somebody else and to know and to be living into that creative picture that God gave in Genesis chapter 2 where the two become one flesh, that is, in my understanding, what heaven's going to be like. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that we now know in part, we see through a glass dimly. And so our knowledge of God is fragmentary. But Paul then says, in heaven, I will know fully even as I have been fully known. See, right now God knows us fully and he still loves us. But one day we're going to reciprocate that. We're going to have full knowledge of who God is and delight in that intimacy with the heavenly father. Marriage today, let's not forget, is a picture of that union. The fullness that we wait for. And so wherever you find yourself today, however you self-identify, remember, there's a much more powerful intimacy that God's going to offer us in heaven to come. And we wait for that together. Let us pray, Lord. I don't know how different people are hearing this right now. I pray that you would minister to the hearts, whether they're feeling there was a hard word, whether they're feeling like this was something they wanted to hear. Lord, I pray you would meet them in their questions. But for those holding out hope for transformation, Lord, I pray you would meet them there. Give them strength to endure if you should ask them to live life without transforming them in the way they wish. But Lord, we pray, regardless, that you would be at work in our people. Lord, help our marriages to be strong. Help us love our wives, our husbands, with a commitment that you call us to. Lord, in our, in our world where it, it's, we have all kinds of questions about marriage, about sexuality, Lord, I pray that you would help us pursue this picture that you've given to us Live it out boldly, but to live it out faithfully. We can't do that on our own strength, Lord. We need you. So come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.